0: H.P. Lovecraft once said, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. This is Save vs. Rant.
1: Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the everyman gaming podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about one of our all-time favorite board games, Arkham Horror. Arkham Horror is an
0: adventure board game set in Lovecraft's fictional city of Arkham, Massachusetts. It's a game for one to eight players. Four to five is recommended, but we've had success playing it with three or even two players before. It is one of our favorite board games of all time. In it, you take the role of an investigator trying to prevent one of the ancient ones from awakening, wreaking havoc on the city and quite possibly the entire world. In order to do this, you have to close portals that the Ancient One opens to other worlds, and eventually, when you close enough portals, the Ancient One is defeated. If the Ancient One opens too many of these portals, you do get one final battle with the Ancient One that is a very difficult uphill fight most likely resulting in your defeat. But if you do defeat the Ancient One in this last-ditch effort, you can still salvage a victory, even though you didn't successfully stop it from awakening.
1: Now, this is a really big game with hours and hours of adventure in it. And we love this game, and we're going to be gushing about that for the next half hour or so. But before we do that, we really should kind of preface it with the negatives. Kind of give you the downsides of this game. The first one And probably the most important one is that this is a big game. It is a heavy box, and the area that it requires is huge. You're not going to be able to play this game on just your mother's coffee table. It's not going to fit.
0: This is a dining room table game. What you need to understand is that you first have a very big board. We're not talking a monopoly size board. We're not even talking a risk size board. We're talking a very large game board and in addition to this very large game board you're going to have nine decks of cards that you have to be able to set out next to the board shuffled and ready to go on top of that you have all the bits that need to be within regular reach and on top of that you need space for your characters each character has a character sheet upon which you need to place several sliders which will help represent your stats in order to do this you have to have the room to, to put all of this stuff And then, the items that your character has, some of them are exhaustible, which means that they need to be marked as exhausted by, uh, you know, doing the magic thing and tapping them or turning them sideways to mark this. All of this requires some space, so space is a premium with this game. You have to have a lot of space. talking dining room table at the least.
1: Not only that, but there are two other very large decks, the Mythos deck and the Otherworld deck, which have their own spaces on the board, which you need to be able to have access to, be able to reach to at all points in time, and read. You also need to have an area to store all of the monster tokens. The monster cup, I believe it's called in the book, we usually use the top of the game box. Uh, They say use a bag or a large cup or some opaque bowl, but we found that the box lid works really well. Plus, you need to have the box itself to just archive things if they get removed from the game somehow. Huge game. Really big game substantial space requirements. Uh we typically have
0: played on a um either a very large table or if we don't have a very large table of several T V trays that we have for additional space. And unlike games like Monopoly where there's a spot on the board for like the chance and the community chest and all that there's really not a lot of board space that can be used for anything but the actual game board purposes. There's stuff that needs to be moved on the game board, and there's several tracks that need to be marked on the game board as well, and all of that has to be placed on the board. So board space is a premium. You can't just set everything on the board and work from there.
1: And this game takes a lot of time to set up and tear down. This isn't a game that you can just go, oh, let's play that, grab it off the shelf, pop open the lid, and you're ready to play. This has 10 minutes or so of setup and teardown at the beginning and end of the game. And that can really bore people. You know, it's, it's a very time-intensive game. And yeah, on top of that, the game itself takes a long time
0: to play. The box boasts two to four hours, but we found it really skews pretty heavily toward the four-hour mark unless you're playing with people who are very familiar with the game and don't need to consult the rules a lot or otherwise get bogged down in any of the details of the game it also helps if you're not so Im- if you're not so impressed by the narrative elements and you just glaze over that because those can take a pretty substantial amount of time, like I said, it skews toward the four hours, and we've had games go as long as six hours before, uh, albeit that was with a lot of players. Still, it can be a very time-consuming game. Definitely not something you can just play as a pickup session just for fun.
1: Now, this game has a 24-page rulebook, and this is a rules-dense rulebook. It doesn't have a lot of fluff in the in the rulebook itself. It, it has a lot of crunchy mechanical bits. And there are times that this gets really... uh, that this gets confusing. It it gets to the point where some players go, wait, I have to attack the monster during the Arkham Encounters phase? No, no, no. You attack them during the Movement phase. And this isn't always that intuitive. To be fair, most of the rules are very intuitive, especially if you have a lot
0: of experience with games in general. For instance, it's... Pretty obvious to most gamers that if you have a sanity and health limit, that's as much sanity and health as you can have. You can't really go over the limit normally. Similarly, um, there's focus in the game, which allows you to readjust how your stats are set up. That's pretty intuitive. Once you know how that works, you don't really get confused about it um monsters have some keywords and those keywords are for the most part pretty intuitive you know a monster that has ambush attacks you before you have a t- chance to deal with it a monster with overwhelming causes you physical damage before you even start the fight with it things like that you know it, it if a monster has horror it uh causes you sanity damage without you even losing the fight to it all of these things can uh, makes sense once you've actually played the game or once you've actually understood the rules, you don't really need to consult the rules to figure those things out. That helps a lot, but it there is that upfront rules learning. You do need to learn all these rules in the first place. You need to know how a flying monster works. Once you've got that down, it makes sense. It goes into the sky, it comes down and attacks. Yeah, it's flying, obviously. But you still need to learn the rules up front in order to play and that does mean going through a 24-page rulebook to play the game.
1: I think the last little bit that's really negative about this game is, even though it's a narrative game, it doesn't have a huge overarching story. Yeah, you might be fighting to keep Cthulhu from waking up, but the different Arkham encounters aren't really supporting that. Instead, you're dealing with the street rat who just picked uh, picked your pocket. You might have just been arrested. And all these things are just story bits. They don't deal with the overall narrative of the game. All that aside, we love this game. I think the reason that I love this game uh, the most is that it's fully cooperative. As far as board games go, most of the time you're playing against one another, or sometimes it's most of the players versus one other player in a and d DM fashion. No, in this game, it's all players versus the game. And it's not an easy game. There have been a number of times that we've just lost this game, but it's everyone together trying to win, trying to go forward, and trying to beat down this horrible, terrifying monster.
0: And it's a heavy game. There's a lot going on here, and that's really plays to its strengths in this case. There's a lot of options for how you deal with the game and you can play the game without ever having the same... Gameplay experience twice. There are several routes to go to achieve victory. I mean, ultimately, you need to close these gates, you need to seal the gates, and you need to stop the Great Old One from awakening. How you approach that can be different based on things like what characters you choose or what characters are chosen for you if you do it randomly, what specific strategies you choose to pursue, what methodology you use, what locations you choose to focus on. All of these are options that give you. Choices in how to approach the game. For instance, we've played entire games where no one ever considered trying to become deputized or taking out a bank loan or anything, but those options are still strong. We didn't choose not to do those things because they were bad choices or something like that. We chose not to do them because it wasn't the strategy we were playing that specific game, and we've played the game with many different strategies.
1: Uh, one of my favorite strategies is to take the character Jenny Barnes who gains money every turn, and then get her an ability called a retainer, which gets her even more money every turn. Then I amass a huge pile of wealth, go around, buy up a bunch of items, and then basically be Santa Claus to all the other players, going, here, you need this, go do this. Here, you need this, go do this. Hey, take this Tommy gun, go to the uh, Plateau of Lang and shoot down all the monsters there. Actually, that seems pretty awesome the more I say that.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, is that there's a lot of emergent awesome in this game, which is another thing worth mentioning, is that even though their story bits aren't directly related, there can be an emergent story of crazy things happening. You know, uh, one game I played, I joined the Silver Twilight Lodge, the secret cult that uh, seeks to further the influence of the old ones. And ended up being pushed into a portal with uh, no choice of it. Ended up on the Plateau of Leng, where I was uh, suddenly hijacking Biaki's steeds and stealing moon wine from Migo. It was just all of this crazy weirdness. And that's part of the game experience, is all of these crazy emergent stories. All of this crazy stuff that can happen to you. All these great things you can do. All these choices. You have a lot of options as to how to play the game.
1: So, so John uh, re- real quick I do love really pretty math and at some point in the future we're going to talk about pretty math but one of the things I love about this game is that the other world locations are color-coded and through a little bit of of thought your possibilities of drawing a specific encounter uh, based on your location is 50/50 you can will either uh, you have a 50% chance of drawing one specifically for your place or or a 50% chance of getting the other option. And this is true even for the Dreamlands, which has all four color options. And that, that was just amazing to me when I realized that. That was so cool.
0: Actually, if you do some mathematical analysis of this game, and people have, it does have some really excellent design to it. Things like there are locations where gates are more likely to pop up than other locations. There are locations that are safer or more dangerous than other locations. Certain locations are better suited to specific types of encounters and specific types of of items can be found. In a lot of cases, this is very intuitive. You don't really, honestly, you don't really need to be told up front that going to the bank is one of the best ways to find and acquire money. You know, you don't need to be told that if you're looking for a clue, the newspaper might be a good place to look. All of this is pretty intuitive. It doesn't really require a lot of explanation. Having said that, if you do want to dig into the meat and potatoes of how the rules work, you can find that a lot of thought was put into this. There's a lot of design that went into this game and a lot of real consideration for how the game would play out.
1: Now, not only is there a lot of design and thought put into the base game, there are eight expansions for this game. And each one of them changes the game in a fundamental way. And each of them was also designed amazingly well. Uh, For example, The King in Yellow turns up the difficulty of the game. If you want to make the game harder, put in the king in yellow. If you want to invest in a whole nother table, the Dunwich Horror adds another section to the board.
0: As does the Kingsport Horror, on a side note, but...
1: And Innsmouth Horror.
0: Yeah. The Dunwich Horror was the one that really showed how willing they were to change the basic assumptions of how the game worked, and... Uh, Fantasy Flight did a great job of giving us a completely different game experience with fundamentally the same game. I mean, it doesn't really change the Arkham encounters a lot. There are some added encounters, as I recall, in the Dunwich Horror But uh, she changes a few things. For instance, it introduces um, insanities and wounds uh, as an alternate thing that happens when you run out of health or sanity. Instead of just going back to the hospital and having to convalesce or going back to the asylum and having to recover your sanity, you can instead take one of these uh, wounds or sanity... um, or insanities, which fundamentally change how you play the game. They may limit your character in some way, or they may uh, require your character to play differently. And in so doing, you take on an additional challenge with the payoff that you don't have to set yourself back on what you were in the midst of.
1: Uh, They even furthered the storylines of the characters. Each of the characters on the back of the character card have a reason why they're in Arkham looking for whatever. Uh, in one of the later expansions, I think it was the Kingsport expansion? I think so, yeah. They fleshed out the the ends of these people's stories. Uh, it And that was a really, really great... Th- Heck, they even have an expansion that lets you mix the other expansions together. Uh, we, we've uh, always referred to it as the Expansion Expansion.
0: Yeah, the, the Miskatonic Horror Expansion. Uh, it's kind of akin to, if you're familiar with Munchkin, there's the Munchkin Blender Expansion, the whole point of which is to make all of the different Munchkin Expansions work together better. This is the same sort of thing. It's an expansion meant to I- increase the synergy of the other expansions so they work together better. Now the more expansions you play with, obviously the more complex the game becomes. And also the more important it is that you have more than just a few players, especially with the expansions that add additional boards. Uh, you may find that you've got to have someone to babysit the, uh, uh, the, the Dunwich board, uh, to prevent the Dunwich horror from simply running ramshackle over the whole thing and destroying everything. Uh, But it changes how you approach the game, and that's a good thing for expansions to do, especially with a game like Arkham Horror, where if you play it enough, and we played it a lot, you can find yourself not necessarily in a rut, but just in a comfortable position where you find that certain strategies just work for you, which was one of the problems our group was having before we got some of the expansions, is that we were getting very good at the game, and we were getting set in our ways. We liked to play it certain ways, you know? We had people that we frequently designated as being the ones who would take on the other world encounters. And we had ca- all had characters we preferred, which if you choose characters randomly, you can kind of address that. But then a lot of times you just find yourself hoping, oh, oh hey, I pulled Joe Diamond this time. I got it. I'm set. But ultimately... What an expansion should do is give you new options and new ways to play the game, and Fantasy Flight did a fantastic job of doing that. I mean, the expansions give you more options, give you more ways to play the game, and give you more things to consider. It's it's a really excellent design.
1: So, um, I, I'm going to kind of ambush you here, John. I know that we weren't going to talk about this, but it it feels kind of like the elephant in the room. Oh, when Whenever talking about H.P. Lovecraft, it's kind of hard to avoid the fact that he was racist. Oh my God. H.P.
0: Lovecraft was deeply racist, um, even for the time. And racism has always been an underlying aspect of American culture. Unfortunate as that may be, especially in certain time periods in our history uh the 1920s is a good example of one of those time periods where the notion of scientific racism was more of a thing h.p lovecraft was a proponent of eugenics he was uh incredibly prejudiced uh as i recall he married a jewish woman who ended up divorcing him because of how nasty his prejudices and how badly they affected his marriage
1: he he had a pet named after a racial epithet. That's, that's yeah, pretty bad.
0: That's uh, whew, that's that's more than a little awkward. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, we we can recognize someone's position in an artistic community without celebrating who they were as a person. Um, and H. P. Lovecraft was a pioneer of the cosmic horror fiction genre which came about primarily as a response to the much more mundane horror of the Great Depression. So, he was something of a pioneer of an entire art form, an entire genre of fiction. So, in so doing, he did approach a lot of things in new ways, and gave us a lot of very interesting concepts, characters, and locations that we still tend to build on to this day.
1: The, the way I've always liked to talk uh, talk about and say it, we are honoring the art. We are not honoring the artist. We can enjoy the music of John Lennon without mentioning the fact that he's a wife-beater. We can talk about the fact that Arkham Massachusetts is wonderfully horrifying without having to uh, talk about H.P. Lovecraft, the racist asshole.
0: Who was horrifying in a less wondrous way.
1: Let, let's Let's kind of get it out of this uh, dark place that uh, that, that I've uh, accidentally steered us to. Let's talk about why we love this game. I like the fact that it's, as I said, that it's fully cooperative. And I've actually really, really enjoyed the online community of people that have supported Arkham Horror. Uh, online in the forums, there are people who can answer any rules questions. There are people that have made custom fan expansions. There are dozens of fan expansions, and some of them have actually received a lot of praise. Um... Uh, there, are, Yeah, there are a few in specific that uh, are
0: recurring themes among people who... Uh, have an interest in the game. The Gilman Memorial exhibit, for example, replaces the exhibits that are found in the Curse of the Dark Pharaoh expansion, and it's one of the most favored fan expansions. Another very popular fan expansion is the Door to Saturn, which adds an entire um, element of expeditions where the investigators go off to Antarctica or Arabia or Oceania or even Mars and have to replenish the clue tokens available for Arkham. And it it changes, again, how the game is played, which is what a good expansion to a game does. There's an entire suite of tools, uh, originally meant specifically for the game Arkham Horror, which now support uh, several games, Strange Eons, the... uh, The software that allows you to build uh, additional encounters, items, even boards. And it actually is an excellent tool. We used it to make custom investigators for ourselves because we're narcissistic like that. That's just how it works.
1: We've played numerous games where not a single player is playing a base game character; they're instead playing themselves, which actually was really, really upsetting. The one time that you got devoured in the Dreamland, yeah,
0: that was that was pretty terrible. Everything was going great; we were winning really well. The Dreamlands are one of the safest locations in general, as far as the other worlds are concerned, and we're just trucking along. Everything's going fine, and in the Dreamlands, it's like you know, make it's like make a. Uh, make a fight check okay well i've got four dice on a fight check should be fine oh i failed what happens if i fail you are devoured oh i was devoured i've been devoured and this is this it was actually a really uh great gaming moment because the whole room went
1: quiet and we were all just
0: staring at me
1: as i I'm like, i like i was devoured that's just all there's i'm just dead <laughs> And we get moments like that. I, I do have to give a shout-out to the creators of this game, Richard Linnaeus and Kevin Wilson. They've made such a wonderful game, and Fantasy Flight Games have supported this game so well with the expansions. We, we, I don't think we've played another board game where we've had so many interesting little story bits. Like uh, the time that it was, okay, we must sacrifice the child. Wait, 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 wait. The prophecy said it just has to be a drop of throat's blood. Oh, really? No, I was lying! And just a horrifying moment like that. Or the thought of digging up a a corpse from the graveyard to get a Frankenstein's monster-esque thing, only to realize that even doing that is just a drop in the bucket in terms of cosmic horror. We have such wonderful moments here, and I cannot say how much I love this game. I, I will go on and on and on about how much I love this game. Arkham
0: Horror is one of the examples of what we call the Box of Awesome concept. It's not specifically unique to Fantasy Flight, but Fantasy Flight pretty consistently delivers Boxes of Awesome, and I, I have to praise the company on doing such a great job of this. Fantasy Flight, along with uh, a few other companies, Days of Wonder being one of them, but Fantasy Flight does a great job of delivering these boxes of awesome where when you open it up, there's all these bits, all these items, and they do a great job of delivering on it.
1: Uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse is another one of those games that I like to point out is a box of awesome. You open it up and suddenly you're playing comic book characters.
0: The box of awesome concept is just uh, something that we've talked about on numerous occasions between ourselves. This idea that some companies, that some games are these just amazing experiences with all these multifaceted concepts behind them that give you so many options, so many cool interactions, so much going on. And Arkham Horror is to us the quintessential box of awesome game. It is the game where everything that's in it contributes to an awesome game experience, gives you an excellent adventure game that takes you to uh, distant locations in times long past, doing amazing things and taking on impossible odds.
1: All right, so we, we've been talking for a while about Arkham Horror, one of our favorite board games. The next, next episode we have, we're going to be talking about games that, it's not necessarily games that we hate, but more of games that just missed the mark.
0: Yeah, everybody's got games they just do not like at all. Monopoly is one of my uh, favorite examples of a game no one should like. But, uh, <laughs> but we're not going to be talking about games that we hate. We're talking about games that did not do what we had hoped that they would do. That took us to somewhere that was not as amazing as we expected. Or ended up being a letdown or a disappointment.
1: That, that didn't follow through on the promises that they made. So, with that said, thank you once again for listening. Please check out Arkham Horror if you get a chance. Find one of your friends that has it, go to your local game shop, see if they have a demo copy for you to play, or take us at our word and buy a copy of the game yourself. We love it. We hope that you'll love it. Thank you so much for listening. Children accept many things adults will not accept, since the world of a child is a constant revelation without any need for knowledge of cause and effect. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.